City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. Right? This is something we have heard again and again in our lives. Nice guys finish last. In fact, think about all of the tropes of movies, of films, of books, of all these things, that the premise of these things is that the nice guys are going to finish last. Oliver Twist, the poor orphan, just keeps doing the right thing and bad stuff just keeps happening. Uh, Or maybe it's Frodo Baggins, who just keeps trying to do the right thing and bad stuff just keeps happening to him. Maybe you are not a big fan of reading. Maybe you're more a fan of Hitch, right? Where Will Smith is trying to do the right thing and win the girl, and at every point, something goes wrong. Nice guys finish last. I was reminded in, in music that this principle is true, too. I was preparing for my sermon this morning, and a song came up by a band called The Decemberist, and the lyrics of the song are, could just once in my life, could just something go right. We see this in movies, music, in sort of every corner of our lives, this idea that nice guys finish last, that there are people who keep doing the right thing and keep getting bad stuff happening to them. And the reason why we see this so often is because we resonate with that. We have all had moments in our life, maybe a moment that we're in right now in our life, where we keep doing the right thing, and yet everything around us keeps falling where we keep trying so hard to do the right thing, to to do the noble thing, and every time we do, things fall apart. I uh, I remember a book that I read in high school that was titled exactly that, Things Fall Apart. It was a story of a farmer in Africa who had so much go wrong in his life, and yet he was the most noble farmer in the entire village, and yet everything goes wrong, and he ends up being exiled from his family because somebody more or less fell and died on his property. We've been there. You have felt this frustration. I keep doing it. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, and bad stuff keeps happening. What do you do with that feeling? What do you do with that gut instinct that I'm doing the right thing, bad stuff keeps happening, what do I do now? I think for most of us, we tend to respond to that in one of two ways. For some of us, we get angry at God. God, I'm doing the right thing. Why aren't you rewarding me with the good stuff? God, where are you at on this one? God, I've, I've been the good Christian, God. Why, can't you, why does bad stuff keep happening to me, a good person? And so we begin to become angry and bitter. And so it starts to take root in us. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you've been in that position and something else happens to you. You keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the thing you're supposed to be doing. And it doesn't work out for you. And so your response is to double down on hustle. Your response 
is to work even harder. And in many ways, I think this option, the idea that when bad things happen, I'm going to hustle harder, is really something that is a part of our culture here in St. Petersburg. We are a culture that is dominated by the hustle, by working and attempting to do more. We have startups popping up all over town. We have people that are working really hard in academics and research and all of these things. And when something goes wrong, what do we do? We're going to hustle even harder. What's interesting is David is coming to a similar point in his life. If you've been with us over the past uh, month and a half, two months, we've been walking through the life of David. And one of the things that we've seen is that David keeps doing the right thing. In fact, it's interesting that up to this point in David's life, the Bible has not recorded David committing a sin. Now, that doesn't mean that David hasn't committed a sin. That just means that the Bible has omitted up to this point David doing anything wrong. David has been the classic good guy. He has the chance to kill his rival. He has the chance to kill Saul. He doesn't take it. He has the chance to take all the glory from the battle of killing Goliath, but he doesn't take it. He does the right thing. He does the right thing. Over and over again. David is a Boy Scout among Boy Scouts. He is an evil scout of doing the right thing. And now, as we come to our story, we're transitioning to the point where Saul, the king of Israel, is now dead. What do we expect? If this is the, the story that we're all sort of used to, the Oliver Twist, the Hitch, the Lord of the Rings. Now that all of this has kind of fallen apart, that David continues to do the right thing, now that Saul is dead, it's going to be very easy, and David is just going to become king, and everybody is going to live happily ever after. Right? That's what's supposed to happen in the story. David has done the right thing over and over again. And now things are going to go smoothly for David, and nothing bad is going to happen to him ever again. Well, not quite. What I want to do is I want to read the first 11 verses of 2 Samuel 2. And as I do this, we're going to hear exactly, as Saul has now died, what happened to David. So if you would, please stand with me um, as we read God's Word. I'm going to read out loud. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bibles. After this, that is the death of Saul, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up from there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and said to them, May the Lord May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hand be strong, and be valiant, 
For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So here we are again with David. Nice guys, finish last. You would, you would hope for David's sake. You're sort of hoping as you read this story, as the tension builds, that now that Saul is gone, everything is going to work out just fine for David. Except what happens. Not that. When Saul is gone, David becomes king of Judah, the southernmost tribe, the sort of southernmost state of the land of Israel. But Abner, the general of the army that Saul commanded, decided that he didn't want David to be his king. So he went and he found the one remaining, or one of the remaining sons of Saul. His name was Ish-bosheth, which sounds like pig Latin for something you probably shouldn't say at church. And he takes this king... Or he takes this guy and he makes him king. And he makes him king over all of the rest of the land of Israel. This would be roughly the equivalent of David becoming king of Florida and Ishbosheth being named king of the other 49 states. David is king in this one little part of the southern part of the country, and Ishbosheth is king over everywhere else. Can something just go right for David for once, right? What we see, though, as we look at this, is that, that Abner is grasping on to power. He is grasping on and saying, you know what? The, the guy that I followed, Saul, is dead. Which means that I'm probably going to be out of a job very soon. Because his rival is probably going to become king. So what is Abner's response? Is it to sort of say, okay, I understand that. My time as a general in this army has passed. I probably need to go retreat and be a farmer somewhere. No. Does, does Abner say, okay, I realize my side is lost. I'll concede. I'll go see if David has a place for me. No. Abner decides that he's going to grab power. And Abner makes Ish-bosheth king. Interesting as we read that. Did, did the people make Ish-bosheth king? Did the people ask for this acclaim? No, no, no. Abner, with all of his army, says, this is your king. He puts him into power. What's Abner doing here? Let's be honest. If we were to look around our world today, if we were to look around our city today, what we would call what Abner is doing is hustling. He's about to lose everything 
And now he finds a way to make it to where he doesn't lose everything. He is going to make Ishbosheth king, and nobody is going to stop him. What, what, he, what we see in Abner as we read through this passage is a picture of the way that we believe that we can determine our life. See, more often than not, the way that you and I approach life is that we can determine our outcomes. If I work hard, if, if I get through this grad school program, if I get through this residency, then I will be set up for life. I will have the great job that will provide for my family, will set my children up for success. If I just work hard enough right now, I'll get the results that I want. This business idea that I've been cooking up, if I just work really hard at it, I can determine that. I'm going to be the best parent I can be so that my kids will turn out great. happens is, you and I begin to believe this lie that my effort and my hustle can determine the outcomes of my life. And what the Bible reminds us is that this is a false story. That this is a lie. That your life is not determined by how hard you work. Your life is not determined by your passion for what you do in your occupation. Your life and your family is not determined by how good of a parent you try to be. Ultimately, all of these things are in the hands of God. It's interesting, I was reading up this morning about uh, startups. And what the failure rate of startups in America is. We want to take a guess at what the failure rate of startups are? 70%? Michaela, that's close. So get this. 75, 75% of venture capital funded startups. That's not 75% of all startups. That's 75% of startups that get to the point that they pitch a venture capitalist and they get their first round of funding. 75% of those startups fail. Why? Why do 75% of startups that even receive venture capital fail? This article written by the Harvard Business Journal lists a number of reasons. One of them is they don't have a good marketing one of them is, they have the wrong team working on it. One of them is, they got beat to the market by another product. One of them is, they just got unlucky in some unforeseen way. Think about this even with major companies. Whenever you hear a new company, they always say, we're going to be the Uber of this. Right? We want to be the Uber of medical service supplies. We want to be the Uber of law. We want to be the Uber of, right? That's sort of the, the catchy jingo thing. You know what nobody says? We're going to be the lift of this. Right? Uber and Lyft are, as companies, are absolutely 
identical in unimaginable ways. I mean, they're the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing. And yet, what do we associate with it? We associate getting a ride like a cab, but not like a cab, as getting an Uber. Most of us do not ever say, oh, I need to get a Lyft. Lyft doesn't catch your name. It's got a cool spelling with the Y in there. And yet, we sort of, in our minds, block it out and ignore it. Why did Uber succeed and Lyft is sort of very much second place? Or maybe, maybe if you want to go historically, there used to be a brand of cookies. They're still out there, but they're really hard to find. That was a chocolate wafer, cream filling, and then a chocolate wafer on top. Those were originally created by a company called Hydrox. Have you ever heard of Hydrox? No. What do you call those cookies? Oreos. Any, any cookie that's chocolate wafers with cream in the middle are Oreos, despite the fact that they were the second ones in the market. But they won. Why? Why do we talk about Oreos and not Hydroxes? At the end of the day, is it because the people at Hydrox didn't love their job? Is it because they weren't passionate? No, it's ultimately because it is in the hand of God. It is not our luck and our hustle that determine the outcomes in our life. It is not luck that makes Oreos and not Hydrox. It is not luck that makes Uber and lift what they are. It is ultimately the hand of God who is in control of everything. And yet what you and I do is we buck against that. We try to determine all of the outcomes in our lives. It's interesting as you think about this. That the level of peace and contentedness that you feel is directly related to your ability to trust and rest in God. You see, if you think that your hustle, your smarts, and your work and effort are what determines your life and your outcomes, what are you going to do? You're going to work hard and long into the night. You're going to never take a day to set down your phone and stop getting emails. You will never stop working because you are the master of your faith. And if you're going to do this, you have to push through. And so your contentedness is always contingent on how well things are going. So your peace is always determined by how well things are going at work. But the other side of that is that if you believe that God is the one who is ultimately in control, that good and bad flow from His hands, you're going to be able to rest. Because you know that no matter how hard you work, the result is ultimately in the hands of God. You're going to be able to take a Sabbath rest, a day to set down your work emails, to set down all of those things that crush you at work. You're going to be able to set down because you know that ultimately God is the one who's in control, 
not your hustle, and not your effort. And we see this in the passage through David, don't we? Does David immediately, when Saul is dead, start grasping for power like Abner did? No. They're a contrast to one another. What does David do when he hears that Saul is dead? He stops and he prays. He asks God, should I go back into Judah? David has been living on the run. He's been living outside the nation of Israel. He stops and he says, God, should I be doing this? God says, yeah, I want you to go back. He says, okay, God, where do you want me to go? God says, I want you to go to this town called Hebron. David is prayerfully waiting for what God is going to do. Abner, grass power, makes Ishbosheth king. David is waiting. He's waiting for God. He is being slow and deliberate and prayerful about his decisions. Did you see that contrast? That's stark. And if we're honest, we see a lot more of ourselves in Abner than we do in David. It's also interesting that the people come to David to anoint him king. Interesting. Ishbosheth is crowned king. David is anointed king. Because the anointing that David receives is not just political, but it is religious because David is waiting patiently on God. See, what we do oftentimes is we try to use our words, use our good things that we do to manipulate God. We try to say that that I can earn God's blessing if I just do these good things and I avoid these sins. Think about it. When something bad happens, when a when a random car wreck happens, when a when a tree falls on your house, most of us have a sort of gut response that says this, what did I do, God? Haven't I done all of these things? Why did I get in a car wreck? I have done good things. Why are you doing this to me, God? Does David do that? No. He doesn't think that his good works earn God's blessing. And we see how this is rooted deep in David's heart by the way that he treats others. He finds out that the people of Jabesh-Gilead, which is very close to where he's at, are the people that took care of Saul's body. And does David say, okay, the first raiding party, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go get the people of Jabesh-Gilead. They helped my enemy. They served my rival. Is that who they go after? Is that how David does it? No. David sends them messengers saying, hey, Jabesh-Gilead, praying for you. I'm praying that God will bless you, and I want you to know that if you need a favor, I'm here for you. David is so content. He is so at peace with what God is going to do in his life that he can say to his enemies, let me know if you need a favor. I've got you. That is a level of peace and contentedness that you and I rarely experience. Because 
is in little ways and small, the way that our hearts work, is we keep wanting to trust in our hustle. Whether that's our hustle through our work ethic, our smarts, academic prowess, or whether that's the hustle that we try to do enough religious good deeds to get God among us. See, David was living a life absolutely free from the anxiety of what was going to happen next. Which is something that most of us have anxiety. Most of us are plagued by a degree of anxiety. Plagued by what's going to happen to the kids. What's going to happen when somebody finds out about this stuff that What's going to happen if this friend leaves or moves? What's going to happen if I fail at planting a church? What's going to happen? And will our minds be plagued by these doubts and anxieties? And what Jesus says is that we are called to trust God. And it's interesting that we see David praying for his enemies. Because in seeing that, we are reminded very clearly of a picture of David's great-great-grandson. We're reminded of Jesus himself, who while he was on the cross, while he was being tortured physically and spiritually, did not turn to the people that were doing it and say, you have no right to do this. Rather, turns to the people who are torturing him, who are mocking him, and he begins to pray for them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And it's interesting that as David prays for the people of Jabesh Gilead, he prays that God would show them steadfast love. Or maybe your Bible says loving kindness. Whatever it is, it is this, this idea in the Old Testament of the covenant faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that God shows to his people. Not based on anything they can do. Not based on how well they perform or anything that they can pay back, rather based on His love alone. It is the love that Jesus won for us on the cross. It is the love that makes us sons and daughters of God. You see, most of us live our lives apart from God's standing and love of us as sons and daughters. We live like Oliver Twist. We live like Because orphans have to hustle to make it. Orphans have to scrap for every bite of food. But sons and daughters of the king are invited to the table. And so this passage doesn't just remind us that our life is not determined by our hustle, but rather by God. It invites us to rest in the covenant faithfulness of God to us, to his people invites us to take a day every week, probably Sunday, to turn off our emails. To walk away from the hustle and trust that our daily bread does not come from our effort, but from our loving Father who invites us to His table.